It's pretty awesome to be here. Thank you so much for having me back. It's lovely. It's been three and a half months since um, departing. Um, yeah, it's awesome to be back in this space and great to see the uh, induction of Josh and yeah, the new chapter that you're about to step into. I'm going to just do a, sh a short little plug. I, so for those of you who don't know me or haven't really caught up with the story, I'm in the role of interim don't want to do it long term, love the interim, interim director of ministries uh, for the Baptist Churches of WA and for two reasons. I mean they've had a long term leader in Mark Wilson there for 14 years and whenever a long term leader steps out there's um, always change and anxiety and it's probably a good opportunity to actually stop and reassess. So I feel like I'm called to be there and I thank you for liberating me from this place. Um, I'm called to be there to sort of be a bit of a shepherding, uh, stabilising influence in that space. But also, and probably I think this one trumps, I'm, I feel very called to be there to invite our denomination into a conversation about what it means to be local churches in WA, in the Western world, in fact, in a post-Christendom era. So Josh will have received in the week and uh, next week there'll be some more information. We've got opportunities to meet in person. We've got surveys. We really want to hear from people about what you think your community needs from your church. And then we're going to try and figure out what local churches need from a Baptist ministry centre and the leader of that. Then we'll end up with a role description and can go to market, as it were, to find the person to do that role. So a little bit of a plug. Hope that you will engage um, in that when the opportunity comes and... Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a good opportunity for us as a movement, I think, to think about what it is we are about and how we can engage with people best in the, the months that are to come. Okay, now I want to ask you a question. I was going to ask, do you remember the first lie you told? You possibly don't remember the first lie you told. What's an early lie that you remember telling? Make sure it was long enough ago and doesn't impact anyone you're sitting next to before you share the story with them. But remember an early lie that you told and tell someone sitting next to you what, what it was about, if it's safe. You didn't tell any lies. <laughs> now, there's a lie right there. <laughs> okay, take, take 30 seconds. What's an early lie you remember telling? Does that cause troubles there? <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> Have we got counsellors in the room? <laughs> Some people have got wide eyes. They're looking traumatised by what they just heard. This is as close as Baptist gets to the confessional, isn't it, really? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Stop telling your lie stories. I think that's enough. <laughs> Don't tell this to each other, but you can call it out. My next question that I want to ask you is, um, why did you tell that lie, or not that particular lie? Why do you think we tell lies? What are the reasons that make us tell lies? Why have you told a lie in the past at some stage? To avoid punishment. Very sensible, sane. Good reason to tell a lie. To make your wife feel good. Oh. <laughs> okay, we need more counsellors in the room. <laughs> Oh, that's funny, Mel. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I might just walk out now. <laughs> because your mother knew anyway. Okay, awesome. Yep. 
<laughs> Why, uh, what, what are the reasons? What motivates us to tell lies? Beg your pardon? To make an impression. Yeah, excellent. Shame. Absolutely. Yep. Laziness. Yes. I don't want to go to school, so I'm sick. Yep. Okay. <laughs> Big consequences. Yeah. Yeah. Just being plain naughty. There's a pragmatist in the room. <laughs> oh, that was you, you reckon? <laughs> just, just wanted to be plain naughty. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right, well, lies are usually, and most of you are sort of giving some indication of that, they're usually a refuge of sorts, and they're always a distortion of what reality actually is in some way or other. They are what one writer called uh, Scott Commode puts um, like this. He said, lies are a way of seeing the world that upholds a falsehood, one way or the other. And you know what? I'm sure you do know this. It's not just kids who lie. And it's not just grown-ups in awkward places who tell lies, but we lie. Communities lie all the time. Politicians. All right, we're going to pick up politicians now, are we? All right, they lie, yes. But also we lie, communities lie, and we do it all the time. Now, Scott Commode, again, to quote him, calls these communal distortions of the truth big lies. And I just want to say up front, I'm indebted to his awesome book called The Innovative Church, which I highly recommend if you're wondering what the church is going to be in the Western world and post-Christendom. The Innovative Church, and I I'm, I'm, want to just acknowledge that I'm using some stuff out of there to inspire where we're going today. So I'm saying communities lie. Now have a think about this. Think of shopping centres. You are what you wear. That's a community lie. The, the customer is always right. Definitely a lie right there. Buying this item on sale will save you money. Okay, think of social media. You are what you post. Friendship is the same as having followers or likes. If it's tweeted, it's true. There's some big community lies. Think of the church. Sunday attendance equals worship. Reading the Bible equals discipleship. A vote for Scott Morrison is the only way for a Christian to vote. Might be a way. <laughs> and this one, the way you behave proves if you belong. Actually, this last one is a reiteration of a big lie that Martin Luther addressed back in the 16th century in the Reformation period. And it's one that we're going to see in a moment Jesus addressed again and again. This idea that, that the way you behave proves if you belong. It's the lie that says being obedient to the law or to any other set of produced rules actually proves whether or not you belong. Whether or not you follow Jesus, whether or not you are a Christian. The way you behave proves if you belong. And it seems that when I look back over history, you look at what Jesus dealt with, there are some deceptions that you and I go back to again and again. And I can personally see the attraction of this one. You know, there's something comforting that makes us feel a bit less anxious to know who are the good guys and who are the bad guys, doesn't it? I mean, I, in, even in a movie, it's like, you know, I'm annoying one of those people that talks all through the movies. And if I haven't quite got it, I want to know, but do we trust him? Is he good? Or is he one of the baddies? It's very annoying, particularly to my husband and one of my sons-in-law. Um, so we, we want to know. We want to know who are the good guys and who are the bad guys. Who is in and who is out. What to do and think and what not to do and think. It just makes for a neater life, doesn't it? 
So is that what draws us to big lies, do you think? This, this need to make the world neat and tidy. I think in part, yes, that's true. But people who know much more about how the human brain works than I do say that we create lies, both as individuals and communities, to help us cope when we feel overwhelmed by our longings and our losses. That's why we, make, we create lies, when we feel overwhelmed. So, you know... <laughs> Perhaps that longing for a neat and ordered, stress-free life compels us to distort reality, to, to get blinkered, to not see or acknowledge or understand some things, just to keep, to keep the messy things at bay. Or maybe when we lose a relationship with people that really matter to us, we might reframe the way we understand that to deal with the loss, to get some immediate pain relief for the loss. So that relationship's broken down, but that's okay. I didn't need them anyway. Or that relationship is broken down, but that's okay. It was all all their fault. It was you know it was always going to happen that way. So we try and uh, alleviate, get some immediate uh, sense of alleviation for the hurt. And essentially, the big lies come about when we don't address the big questions that go with our longings and losses, and instead we go to some distortion that gives us some immediate pain relief. That's really what a big lie is. And I want to tell you one from my own experience, to give you an idea. This is one of the earliest lies I could recall telling. I'm sure I told them before then, because I was eight when I told this, and I can't have been perfect till then. I was playing with my very uh, best friend at the time, Carolyn Laflave. She was from France, and it was very exotic to have her as my best friend in year three and year four, just saying, when she broke a leg and, and got crutches and charged all the other kids 10 cents for one turn around the tree. I got it free, just saying. Anyway, she was playing at my house and um, we were having a great conversation about what I do not recall, but I wanted to go to the bathroom. So I said to her, come on, and we went to the bathroom together. We lived in the Dowkeith Baptist Mance, big, once grand, big old house, huge bathroom, as big as most of your bedrooms. I see, I'm already still justifying it. Can you see where I'm going here? And as she came in and sat on the edge of the bath and we started chatting while I used the toilet. My mum came down the hallway and knocked on the door and said, Kaz, is someone in there with you? I hadn't thought about it, but in that moment, I remember thinking, oh my goodness, it's not best practice to bring someone into the bathroom with you. And immediately after that, I thought, how silly. I just felt really foolish, like I should have known better. It was a dumb thing to do. And now mum's going to think I'm not very smart and not very good and not very wise. And, and all of that came piling, piling in. So I said to mum, no. And I said to Caroline, hide. It was a big bathroom, but nonetheless, it was a bathroom. There's not a lot of hiding places. But do you know what? She, to her credit, she got in between the end of the bath and the wall. It was very squishy. We were only eight. She was little. Mum didn't come in, though. She just said again, you sure no one's in there with you, Kaz? No. She went down the hallway. Carol and I concocted a very, you know the plan. I'll go out first, wait a few minutes. You got it? Well, Mum caught us, of course. The big lie. I didn't know this at the time, but when I've looked back on that, the big lie that I was buying into was that one mistake means I'm a total failure. I was embarrassed that I'd done a dumb thing. My mum would have just said, don't do that, that's not smart. Come out of the bathroom, Caroline, and on we would have gone. As it was, she sent Caroline home and we weren't allowed to have any play dates for a whole week. The big lie, one mistake means you're a total failure. Now, my point in talking about big lies today is not to make us feel bad about ourselves as individuals or as a church. <laughs> It's to say to you, LBC, as you are opening the door on a new chapter of your community life, now is a great time to take stock. And I know, in fact, that with Josh's leadership already, you have been doing that. 
Josh has encouraged you to embrace the one who holds the universe still, Jesus. He's encouraged you to practice letting go of the need to be in charge and start trusting the one who is ultimately in charge. He's declared to you that his heart's desire as a pastor here is to help people to find freedom in Jesus that is not found elsewhere, a freedom that is not found elsewhere. He's declared that his heart's desire is for you to be a community that liberates people to find their own unique way of following Jesus and that for people to be empowered to follow Jesus in their homes, their workplaces, their communities. You've already heard that from Josh before this day. And so I thought it could be helpful to celebrate and honour Josh's induction and, com- and the commitment that he and Marnell are making and that you are making as a church to be a community that helps people find freedom in Jesus by just taking a bit of stock of some of the ways we may be distorting the truth. And we're gonna, When we look at the stories from the life of Jesus, you can see again and again how he spent so much time addressing big lies. Perhaps one of the most significant big lies that he addressed was that a Messiah is a military ruler. In Mark 8, Jesus recognised that the longing and losses of the Jewish people, including his disciples, meant that they were looking for someone to come with force and might and overthrow the oppressive government that was keeping them down and oppressed. But he saw through to the longings and losses and he saw what they really needed was a Messiah who could make relationships right. Someone who could make relationships right with God, with each other, and in fact with all of the created order. And so Jesus spent so much of his ministry on this earth, on this earth reframing, particularly with his disciples, this whole, whole idea. He, he teaches them slowly that he was their Messiah and that without violent overthrow of a government, he could bring them the freedom they longed for. Then, you know, quick high view level, you look at most of the parables, you'll see that Jesus is constantly addressing the big lie that some people deserve to be at the top of the power and status ladder, and some people don't. He's always addressing that big lie. And then um, in the Sermon on the Mount, recorded in Matthew 5, Jesus reframes a series of six big lies about the law, and he says each time, you have heard it said, but I say... (laughs) What's that if not a reframing of some big lies? As I said uh, earlier when we spoke briefly about Martin Luther, many of the misconceptions that Jesus addressed had to do with the law. Let's take the story that we're going to look at now in John 8. A woman was caught in adultery, and I'm assuming with someone else, although that wasn't much of an issue in this particular story, must be a story for another time. But nonetheless, a woman was caught in adultery and the religious leaders brought her, just her, to stand in front of Jesus who was teaching a large crowd. We're going to read what happened from uh, John 8 starting at verse 4. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses, the law of Moses says to stone her, what do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept on demanding an answer. So he stood up again and again and said, stood up again and said, All right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped back down and wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, maybe the wisest, (laughs) until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. 
Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, so where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. I don't condemn you either, says Jesus. So you are free. What I love about this is you are free to go and live differently now. That's what he was saying. They're not going to condemn you. I'm not going to condemn you. Go. Live differently. Perhaps try and find intimacy, which is surely the longing and loss going on behind the big lie that this woman had bought into. Go and find intimacy, intimate relationship in a better way. So what was the big lie at play here, aside of what was going on for the woman? Well, I think it had to do with the self-righteous arrogance of the religious leaders and probably many in the crowd. I mean, they're furious. They're appalled by this woman's um, failing, to, you know, to the point that they're prepared to, to stone her, to the point that they think it's reasonable. Can you imagine this sort of anger and, and uh, horror and affront, I'm trying to think what it is that they were feeling, that it seemed reasonable to them to throw rocks at another human being until it killed them? Oh, are you telling me it was the law? Yeah, law aside. What had happened... What big lie was going on that made that seem like a reasonable way to act towards another human being? And it wasn't even just according in the context, really, because she wasn't the only one involved in that act of adultery. You know, it struck me when I was reading this, we humans have always had a fascination and probably an overdeveloped sense of justice when it comes to other people's morality. <laughs> Less about mine, but other people's. Okay, so what were the loggings and the losses playing out in the people who could not see their own sinfulness here? Well, perhaps it was their own uh, fear of um, relational betrayal. You know, was, sometimes if, if I do this all the time when I find myself having a strong reaction to something. Oh, what's, what's happening in here? So maybe they were horrified at this woman because of their own fear about relational the possibility of relationship betrayal. Maybe they were uh, afraid of being exposed themselves. And maybe it was that general corporate or community fear of all the relational turmoil that unre unfaithful relationships can bring to a community. They might have been tapping into that. They were so focused on how badly she had failed. And she had broken the law. We've got to say that. She'd broken the law. But they were so focused on that that there wasn't space to acknowledge fears and failings and law breakings of their own, nor to consider, and this is the community aspect of it, nor to consider what part they as a community may have had in this circumstance. We have community responsibilities. We really do. So the big lies here were something like, oh, that other person's sin is worse than mine. Or that other person deserves the full wrath of the law where I would deserve some mercy. And for me personally, I think perhaps the worst big lie here is this one. When someone else offends either the law or perhaps in some other more subjective way they offend me, they don't deserve to be treated like a human being. That's a pretty powerful big lie. And it puts me in mind of the story of the woman at the well. It's also found in John chapter 4. I'm not going to read that from the text to you. I'll tell you a little bit about it. I'm assuming it will be familiar to many of you. But you can read it for yourself in John chapter 4 if it's not. So it's lunchtime. 
And Jesus is sitting, uh, resting on the, on the wall around a well, and his friends have gone to go and find some food in the village. And a woman appears uh, with a water jar, clearly coming to collect water. And that's really unexpected. She's coming by herself, and she was coming in the heat of the day. That wasn't the norm. Jesus stays sitting on the wall of the well, and that's unexpected. Because in that circumstance, if a woman or a group of women did happen to come to a well, it was their job to collect water, the custom was that men would move away so that the women could be sure it was safe to approach the well. He stayed sitting on the well. That wasn't expected. The woman advances. Now, that's really not expected at all, what was going on there for her. And then Jesus speaks to her, and I feel like declaring we are so far along the unexpected continuum now that it's just ridiculous, you know, this whole story. How did that story happen? How did that actually happen in that context? Now, I think it's fair to say that all these centuries and commentaries and papers and conferences and books later, you and I cannot be sure of the exact details of why the woman had come alone to collect water in the middle of the day. There's just not enough detail in that story to give you the exact reasons. But scholars like Deborah Story and many others remind us that there are some things we can be very sure of that are relevant in this story. You can be sure that the woman was an outcast from her community in some way or other, and for some reason or other, that's the only reason she is alone collecting water in the heat of the day instead of with her peers in the cool of the day in the morning. You can be sure about the injustices of the world that this encounter took place in. It's very likely that economic and social factors beyond the woman's control compelled her to marry repeatedly, to live with a man unmarried and to turn up at a well in the middle of the day and apparently not even care about the social protocols being broken. Not that Jesus did either. We know for sure that the broader biblical narrative defends sexually compromised women like Hagar and Tamar and Ruth. We know the stories of our own contemporaries who find themselves in similar situations. And I think we can say we know enough that in good conscience we can't cast this story only in terms of the woman's own sinfulness or her own law-breaking. And we can't with credibility downplay or harass her suffering as if it's not a main part of the story, as if it's just a by the by. And yet that's exactly what we've done with this story for centuries I guess it's too confronting to think about the details of this woman's life. It's too complex to think about what was happening in her community that may have, in fact, been partly responsible for her middle-of-the-day well visiting. It's actually much neater to tag her amongst the bad guys. I mean, she was a Samaritan after all. But Jesus was addressing, as he often did, culture war issues in this story. The culture war issues that inevitably result when we fail to see ourselves as human beings alongside the other. When I don't look at the other and see in that person myself or see alongside that person myself. When we, when we don't see ourselves near or alongside or in another person, we will act differently towards them. And... Unfortunately, it's not usually in a very positive, sort of different way. We often act differently towards them in ways that aren't grace-filled. But Jesus sat with the woman without harsh words of judgment, without telling her what she ought to believe, but communicating truth, even so, 
sat with uh, the woman in that way. He interacted with her in such a way that all these years later, when you and I read that story, we might be prompted to set aside some big lies and to see her differently. Maybe to see her more like us. <laughs> Maybe to see her as right as us, or perhaps to say, like Judah said of Tamar in Genesis 38, actually, she is more right than I. That's a step. We need to learn to see ourselves in or alongside people who are different to us. To see the worth of the other as a person made in God's image. To make space in our communities for those who are different image bearers of the same God. And I think this points to another big lie that this story exposes. The lie that says, I can love my neighbour without knowing anyone who is different to me. I've really struggled with that one over the years. I find it easy to love people. When I stop and look around, I think, yeah, I've got some pretty easy people to love in my life. <laughs> How do I go loving people who are different to me? Do I even know any people who are different to me? Love your neighbour, says Jesus. Can we really do that if we don't love or have a neighbour or see in someone a neighbour, someone who is different to who we are? It's almost as if that lie says a person must be sufficiently like me to deserve my hospitality. Sufficiently like us to find a place with us. And Jesus' interaction with this woman shows us that true hospitality means extending the privileges of our community. So LBC, extending the privileges of this community for people who do not have standing in this community. Extending the privileges of this community to people who don't have standing here. It's treating outsiders like insiders. It's extending privileges of respect and kindness and practical resources and place, a seat, a place, to people across our differences. I really like these stories of the woman um, facing stoning. I mean, I don't like that aspect of it but the, the story of it and the story of the woman at the well because it reminds me that God's kingdom work is always playing out and it's playing out now I have no doubt even with everything that is in turmoil and, and chaos and so much change around us but what these stories remind me is that not only is the kingdom of God always playing out it always has and it's going to continue to play out in extraordinary unexpected unlikely places the places that I wouldn't expect like on the walls of wells. <laughs> the kingdom played out when Jesus invited the one without fault to throw the first stone. That was the kingdom of God at work. It played out, as I say, when Jesus sat on a well wall with a woman nobody else would have sat with. It played out when Jesus said, I am not a military ruler and I am the Messiah. It played out when Jesus said, you have heard it said, love your neighbour and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You see, Jesus says to all he meets, there's a way to live life liberated to what is good, a way to never be thirsty. That's what he said to the woman at the well. There's a way to never be thirsty, but what for? There's a way to never be thirsty for freedom, for love, 
for purpose, for place, for community, for God. There's a way never to be thirsty for God. There's a way never to be thirsty for freedom, for a place, for love, for purpose. There's Jesus. But the trouble with big lies is they stop us hearing and living and proclaiming this gospel, which I think speaks so powerfully to our longings and our losses. There is a way, I want to say it again, there is a way in Jesus for human beings never to be thirsty for freedom, for love, for purpose, for place, for community and for God. All right, nearly there. What are we going to do? It's all very well, but what are we going to do? How do we listen out for big lies? How do we detect them? Are they even a thing? It's something you're going to have to go away and have a think about now. You know, how do we live well with each other and as a church in our community, unhindered by the big lies that might actually be getting in the way of the gospel? I think that's partly what we're seeing in the, certainly the public sphere of the presentation of Christianity at the moment. There's some big lies getting in the way of, what, of, of the gospel news of Jesus offering freedom. We never need to be thirsty for the freedom and the place and the purpose and, and the relationship with God that he offers. So there is some good news because I've got a very practical, doable thing that we can take away. And I, I, I believe with my whole heart it is practical and doable. And it's basically to commit ourselves to intentionally listening. Now hold on in case you think that sounds a bit airy-fairy. I, I really do strongly believe this. I think if churches in the Western world could do this one thing, if we could lean in across differences and listen uh, and the differences are in here as well as out there. <laughs> if we could lean in and listen across differences, then I think that we would be taking a very positive evangelistic step towards becoming places, towards local churches becoming places where people find freedom in Jesus. I think in leaning in and listening well, we will be preaching Jesus and that's always been a better way of inviting people into the kingdom, preaching Jesus, not our doctrinal convictions. But of course, to lean in and listen, we actually need to be in relationship. Some of the stuff that you've been, I know a small group of you have been working through with the um, building a discipling culture, that, that idea there. We need to lean in. To lean in, we need to be in relationship. And we need to be in genuine relationship with each other and with our neighbours, at least some of whom are not like us. At least some of whom are not like us. And as we listen in these relationships... So that's the first thing I think we can do. We can lean in and listen. And then we're going to listen in a certain way. We need to listen with empathy. And that effectively means listening without wanting to control and assimilate the other. I know I do that when someone's presenting a view or a position that I, I'm just dying to say, yes, but, but, but. <laughs> but listening with empathy is listening to understand, not to control where the conversation ends up even, and not to try and assimilate them to what it is I think. Those, in the ebb and flow, changes will happen, but that's not the initial point of listening at all. Listening with empathy means listening without wanting to control and assimilate the other. It means stepping into the conversation with this one willingness, willingness to be changed yourself, willingness to find that actually... <laughs> The accommodation, the, the transformation may be more about something in me than the other person. And I think that's an important aspect too. So let's listen for the longings and the losses behind people's words. Listen for what keeps each other awake at night. <laughs> that's not usually actually a big doctrinal question if we're honest. <laughs> 
What keeps people awake at night is things about uh, belonging and identity and purpose. Is this all there is? Does anything I do matter? What do I want to be when I grow up? And people of all ages ask that. <laughs> Does anyone really know me? Would people like me if they really knew me? How are people going to remember me? Oh, will people remember me? Listen for other questions as we lay our heads down on our pillows. Questions about basic fears, the fear of death, the fear of shame that was mentioned earlier, and guilt and condemnation. And then all those questions we have in our heads about work and family and health and finances. Are my kids going to grow up okay? Is my health going to last? Do we have enough to live on? Can we get to take that trip? Will we have that baby? Will I ever paint that masterpiece? These are all longing and loss questions. These are the things that define what it means to be human. So let's lean in and listen to those. Like Jesus, let's sit on the walls of wells with people who are not like us. That's going to be a little uncomfortable. <laughs> but having done it just a little bit, it's also some of the most awesome leaning in and conversations and relationships that you get to be involved in. And let's see how in this space the freedom that Jesus brings will help us to put aside big lies with their quick fix pain relief and instead make sense together of the losses and longings we have while we wait for that complete healing of all creation when Jesus comes again. I think this is an exciting time to be the church. I know it is also very frightening and overwhelming and we, there's just some facts and figures that church attendance and engagement in the Western world is in decline. It is a post-Christendom world. Some people think that's a good thing. Some people think it's not, uh, not a great thing at all. But it, it is a different world that we live in. And I know some of us are frightened and overwhelmed and you know, our instinct is to go back to what was. But I have an overwhelming sense that God might be saying to us, why don't you hold um, some of those things you used to hold really tightly, could you hold them just a little bit lightly in this season? Because I want you to put all your energy into leaning in and listening across differences to the longings and the losses that our Jesus came to, to, to face with us. I suppose let go of a few things, <laughs> loosen up. So there's space in head and heart and calendar to actually lean in and listen, looking for those longings and losses that Jesus came to face with us. Because God still has his church, and God still has the world, and God has you, Les Murdy Baptist Church. So lean in and listen. I think that might just be the path on which to travel now. Embrace the one who holds the universe together. As Josh has said, Jesus. Embrace the one who actually frees us to live differently. I think it's a wonderful opportunity. And I'm glad to be in some way on the journey with you. Will you join me in prayer as the band comes on the platform? Father God, it is a changing world. Some of the changes are good. Well, they can still be emotional for us. <laughs> Some of the changes don't feel so good. And sometimes the, the thing that just plays out most is simply the enormity or the consistency or the relentlessness of the change. But we've taken some time this morning to remind ourselves that you are still God. 
You are not caught by surprise or caught out or wondering what, what's going to happen now. And history is actually moving in a straight line and quite quickly towards your good outcome when you will bring your kingdom perfectly to this earth. Father, I pray for the people in this church. And I pray for Christians in Perth across Australia that our confidence in your sovereignty and your faithfulness and the permanence of you being who you are will grow and grow so that we might know that we can let go of some things that we're used to holding tightly and holding to you, learn to lean in and listen across differences, making space for Jesus and his own Holy Spirit to do whatever it is that happens inside people's hearts and minds, happens inside our own and we see it in others. So that where there is things that need to, to be different, where we need to live differently, that work will be done by the power of God's own spirit inside each of us. For us, Lord, it's to lean in and listen. And to tune our ears to look out for the longings and the losses behind so much of the noise of what it is that we and other people say. Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear that. Father God, thank you that you are always who you are. Jesus, thank you for sitting on the wall of a well with someone no one else would sit with. Thank you for understanding the deepest parts of what goes on in our heads and hearts. We give ourselves to you in great hope. Amen.